Awesome. Okay, make your way back to your seats. Uh, we're, we're moving through the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 9 today. I didn't print it out in the sermon notes at the front on the table because it's quite a long chapter and I'm going to be moving through it quickly at a higher level. But if you have a Bible, you can turn and open it. Otherwise, we'll just be sort of following in the thematic chunks of the passage so that you can sort of trace the flow. But I want to start with a question. And this whole section is really a confession for me, but we'll get to that later. Uh, how are you in dealing with interruptions in your life? You're ready to get off to work, normal morning, car won't start. Child wakes you up in the middle of the night, interrupts your sleep, asks you for water, something they absolutely could have gotten on their own, but anyways. Phone call. In the middle of your work project, you're in a flow state. You're like, this is so good. I'm making ground. It's working. And then some kind of interruption, a tap on the shoulder, a phone call. Maybe it's a sickness that doesn't just interrupt for the moment, but you had plans for this week or this month, and now you're kind of sidelined for days or maybe even weeks. But the interruptions that come when you're moving through your day and your plans, and your schedule, and a curveball comes along, and now you need to pivot. If I never hear that word again, it'll be too soon. So here's a genuine, honest pastoral confession. Here's how I deal with interruptions. Not well. Uh, I'm an Enneagram 3 who values productivity and accomplishment, and I usually... Uh, try and cram as many good things into my day as possible and try and knock off as many productive things in my to-do list as possible. And so once I start my plan for the day or I move into the week, I have an agenda. And it's a good agenda. And if I can accomplish all these things, or even most of them, I'm really going to make a dent. And my goal, once I start really any task, is to just avoid obstacles and interruptions. My default mindset is anything that prevents me from executing this plan that I have today or for this hour is a hindrance. And so it's very easy for me to get locked into things that I'm doing. And if there's any kind of interruption, even if it's relatively minor and, and very understandable even, I can feel within myself an immediate swell of frustration and anger and impatience. And then what I do is I turn to the interruption, which often is a person, <laughs> and I just deal with the interruption as efficiently as possible. And in the process of doing that, I've definitely uh, hurt people, I've definitely send the, sent the signal to them that they are an interruption and not a welcome one. During the pandemic, during phases in the pandemic where the health authorities were saying, really, really limit your social contacts. Work from home if possible. Um, my wife wouldn't let me do that. And that is because I can't work at home 
in the presence of other people because I'm so emotionally immature that as natural interruptions happen, hey dad, what's for lunch? Hey dad, could you help me log on to this thing I need to do for school? Hey dad, how's your morning going? I get frustrated. In fact, in something that I don't necessarily recommend you do with with your kids, but I did it. I, I was driving Lauren into work yesterday and I said, Lauren, you don't need to censor anything. You're not going to be in trouble. There's no threat here. How, do you th- how would you describe how I respond to interruptions? And she said, oh, that's easy. You're grumpy McGrumper pants. <laughs> that was a very nice way of saying it. I said, oh, that makes it sound kind of cute. <laughs> and Heather's like, the kids know this. Like when dad is at his computer, he's reading or he's thinking, I kind of have this furrow, I look angry, but I'm really just focused. But man, I don't deal well with interruptions. I'm not good at multitasking. I like to focus on one thing at a time and get it done. Now I am better in this area than I used to be because when you have a certain amount of family responsibility and professional responsibility and personal and community responsibilities, you understand that there's never going to be an interruption-free day. You know that here's the plan, but it's not going to play out this perfectly. But I still am surprised at how impatient I get with just minor interruptions. I still react negatively, uh, even though I've kind of mellowed and matured in my old age. Today is a story about someone who experiences an interruption. And it's an annoying interruption, but it actually leads to something really significant. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And for me at least, and I hope for you, it's a story that really, really challenges us to think and receive interruptions differently in our life. It's done a tremendous work in me And I hope that it continues to, and I hope that it will do so for you as well. So let me just pray on the outside of this message, and then we'll move through the text. God, as we look into your word, and maybe for many people, this is an obscure chapter. This is not a chapter that um, many would teach on if you were only hitting on the quote-unquote main chapters of 1 Samuel. But it just goes to show how... uh, all of your word is necessary to study and reflect on. May you do a work in my heart and in our community's heart in this time. Amen. Okay, 1 Samuel is a long chapter, so I've kind of provided an overview. There's kind of an A part, B part. Part A deals with this guy named Kish, who's the dad of Saul, who's going to become the first king, spoiler alert, and he loses his donkeys. And then as a result of chasing after these donkeys, Saul meets Samuel, and Samuel has a message for Saul. Um, so I'm going to walk through this passage. The, the particular verses aren't going to be on there. I'll read them, but this will kind of help you see how the narrative is flowing and building. So in verse 1, we're introduced to Kish and his son Saul. It says, There was a Benjaminite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, who was the son of, son of, son of. There's actually five descendants that it names. So whenever you have someone 
who is the son of, the son of, the son of, that refers in ancient context to prominence. They're a person of standing. They're, they have status. And they're a Benjaminite, which means they're part of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, for some people, you might say, okay. Uh, but Benjamin at this point in Israel's history is pretty infamous. It's the smallest tribe. But in uh, Genesis, God gives a prophecy for the house of Benjamin that will, that, it will, that it will serve as a ravenous wolf. That's going to be strong but mighty. And there's going to be a lot of... It's going to um, be one of the tribes that has an outsized military competency and capacity compared to the other tribes. But earlier in the, from, in the book of Judges, so in the timeline just preceding when Samuel begins, the book of Samuel open, opens up, the Benjaminite tribe is embroiled and I think what's fair to say, some of the darkest and most disturbing passages in the Old Testament, I don't even really want to describe them broadly because there are young ears here, but it is, uh, they take courses of action which reveal an unbelievable amount of brutality, so much so that all the other tribes in Israel say, we're going to kind of circle around this tribe and no one's allowed to marry their daughters. We're going to try and cut them off. There's a huge civil war that happens. And the tribe almost gets wiped out. They don't. Um, there's some weird and wacky stuff that happens to prevent that. But anyways, but this is sort of a, um, you know, to, to, to know, to signal that this is a Benjaminite. This is a, a, a tribe with a checkered history. And so right away, someone reading this is going to say, oh, this is interesting. What's, what's going on here? Verse 2 says, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as you could find anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Text is very clear up front. Israel's just asked for a king, and from an exterior point of view, Saul fits the bill. He's as attractive as anybody, and he's a head taller. And just, you know, then, like today, if you are attractive and tall, there are all kinds of leadership traits that people just presume upon you. Uh, if, if you do um, psychological tests where you're asked to infer leadership uh, competency, people who are tall based on no other factor get rated as higher. So do people who are attractive. So Saul, from the outset, from the outside, looks like he's an awesome candidate. Then, in verse 3, we hear that these donkeys that belong to Saul's father, Kish, are lost. Kish says to his son, go and find the donkeys. So he's like, okay. And then in verse 4, he's going around and he's looking for the donkeys. He's trying to find them and they go all over and they're not finding them. And then in verse 5, Saul takes the servant with him. And at one point, Saul says, we should just head back because forget about my dad being concerned about the donkeys. He's going to wonder where we are. And the servant says, well, um, we're close. Over here is a town and there's a man of God there. And he's really respected. And everything that he says comes true. So let's go over there now because he can tell us the way to take to find the donkeys. And so Saul's like, well, it's kind of the kosher thing to do is to offer something in exchange for that kind of wisdom and that kind of insight. We don't have anything to give. And the servant's like, well, I got a little bit of change on me. Saul's like, mm, it's not great, but okay, let's do it. So Saul says, okay, fine, let's go. They move into this town where the man of God was. And we find out the man of God was Samuel in his old age. So as they're going towards this town, they meet um, these women. 
some young women. They've been out drawing water. And Saul says, is the seer here? Like, is, is the doctor in? And they say, he is. Yeah, he's just ahead of you. If you hurry up, you, know, you can catch him because he just came out of the town and he's going to the high place to offer a sacrifice. So as soon as you enter the town, you're going to find him before, sorry, he's just about to go out and offer a sacrifice at the high place. So if you go into town, you might catch him before he goes up to the high place to eat. Um, the people won't begin eating and sacrificing until he comes because he has to bless the sacrifice and then afterwards people are going to be invited to eat. So go now, you should find him about this time. So Saul and the servants, they go up to the town, and as they were entering, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way to the high place. So in verse 15, it says, the day before Saul came, so it's a little flashback. So Samuel and Saul are meeting outside this town, and we get this flashback that the day before God had said to Samuel, about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send a man from the land of Benjamin. I want you to anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people and their cry has reached me. So now we flash back to the scene. They're about to meet each other. And it says, when Samuel caught sight of Saul, God said to him, that's the, that's the, that's the man I spoke to you about. He's going to govern my people. So Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and said, Will you please tell me where the seer's house is? It's kind of weird. We're not sure exactly what this infers about the Benjaminites or Saul, but it's kind of weird because in the previous chapters, we've heard a refrain that all of Israel knew who Samuel was. Samuel went around to Israel. All of Israel was seeking. And I know that's a huge generalization, but some commentators say this is, this is telling that neither Saul, that Saul didn't know, A, where this seer was, and he doesn't recognize him. So just hold that little mental bookmark in place. Samuel says to Saul, well, I'm the seer. Right? Like this is like the Luke Skywalker Yoda thing. Like, I'm looking for a great Jedi master. Like when Luke is like, I'm tired of dealing with this little frog man. And Yoda eventually is like, like I'm the great Jedi master, right? And it's like, what? And so Samuel says to Saul, go up ahead of me to the high place for today you're going to eat with me. And then in the morning, I will send you on your way and I will tell you all that is in your heart. Which is kind of intimidating, right? I'm looking for some lost donkeys. Just kind of want to know the way. No problem. Stay overnight. We'll feed you. You can go tomorrow. And then I'm going to look deep into your soul and tell you everything about it. And you're like, uh, I, just the donkey directions are fine, right? <laughs> That'd be so weird, right? If you think about these normal interactions, like, hey, you know, just flat tire, need my car fixed. No problem. We'll fix your car. But then we're going to have a meeting one-on-one -on -one, and I'm going to tell you everything you've ever thought and reach deep into your soul. Just, just the oil and filter. It's fine. I really, that, you know, this is, this is weird. Like, like, what is going on? Who is this guy? Again, remember, this is not on Saul's radar. So everything that's being said here is loaded with meaning and probably intimidating and confusing for Saul. Samuel says, oh, the donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't worry about them. They've been found. 
And then I imagine this long pause and he just looks at Saul and he says, and to whom is all the desire of Israel turned if not to you and to your whole family line? That's slightly awkwardly worded. You could also translate it looking at Saul and saying, you, Saul, are the one for whom every desired thing in Israel is kind of coming to a head. Every desired thing can also be translated um, as treasured thing. Oh, by the way, remember how for years we've been asking God for a king? All, remember, remember the Christmas carol, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, talking about Jesus? That's kind of like what Samuel is saying to Saul. This is all coming to a head on you. And then verse 21, Saul says, um, I'm a Benjaminite, so I'm from the smallest tribe in all of Israel. And isn't my clan, like a subgroup within that tribe, isn't my clan the least of all the clans in the tribe of Benjamin? Why would you say such a thing to me? Now, there's a way to read this passage. There's, there's a way to read that response from Saul as, well, there's two ways. The first is to read it as humility. There's a not-so-veiled reference that you are going to be the ruler and king. You're the one that the promise is going to be fulfilled through, the first king of Israel. Oh, I, I'm, not the, I'm not the right person for this. I, I don't have the status and standing. And there's a genuine... Um, just from a place of genuine humility, he can't wrap his head around that idea. And that's probably the way we're most tempted to read it. But there's another way you can read his response. And that is that it's coming from a place of really deeply entrenched insecurity. And the reason why it's important to think through the dynamics involved in that, because Insecurity and humility can often look very, very similar, but they're driven by very different things. And I think as we move into the next chapter and then the chapters that follow, and we see Saul's life unfold, and we see as Saul comes into power, what power always does is it amplifies who you are. And as he comes into power, what isn't very obvious is that this is not a humble person coming into power, but it's a deeply insecure person. And that insecurity at the level of soul is something which is going to ultimately bring Saul to ruin. And so we're seeing here just a seed, just a, the merest little hint, a little crack in the door, that shows us that this first king in part of his interior makeup is going to be operating from the same insecurity that all of Israel is operating out of when they say, we want a king like all the other nations have. We're not secure in our identity to be God's people. We're not secure to be wholly indifferent. That that's, I, I, don't, I want to be like everyone else. And so an insecure people are going to be, in a sense, given an insecure king. 
So again, use this. Sometimes the, um, the play out of these themes don't happen in one or two chapters. This is going to, this is a make a mental note and then watch how this response or um, the uh, actions and events and occurrences that are about to occur, you read back into this and say, oh, Saul had some <laughs> real identity and insecurity issues. This is not coming from a good place. Because a humble person might say, like genuinely, hey guys, let's be honest. I'm one of the most attractive people in Israel. And let's be honest, I'm a head taller than other people. I'm not saying I'm going to be the king, but I fit the mold of what a king like the nations have. So maybe it could be me. Like that could be a genuinely humble response, but it doesn't even occur to Saul. Because somewhere in him, he doesn't see himself like that. So Samuel brings Saul and a servant to the hall. Samuel doesn't respond to Saul. He just leaves Saul. Like, why would you say this to me? Samuel continues on. They have this dinner party. There's a special meat that's provided that Samuel and the cook set aside just for this moment. And then um, they, they dined together that day. Then in verse 25, it says, after they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. There's not a... There's no details given on what that exchange, what happened during that exchange. Interesting to let your imagination run with it a little bit. Maybe that's where Samuel kind of teases out why Saul is is responding that way. Verse 26, they rose at daybreak and Samuel called to Saul on the roof and said, get ready, I'm going to send you on your way. And so Saul got ready. They went outside together. And as they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Just let your servants go ahead of us. And the servant did that. And then Samuel turned to Saul and said, I want you to stay here for a second because I want to give you a message from God. So again, just try and inhabit the story. Just a guy. My dad's lost his donkeys. Trying to search for the donkeys. Didn't find them. And now through a long and weird and winding road, I've been, in a sense, declared by this prophet seer that I'm going to be the first king, and now there's a message from God for me. Now we're going to leave it there, because I think that's a good cliffhanger from which to move into the next chapter. And there's probably lots of things that as we read further into the story, we could go back to this chapter and see certain things being seeded, certain foreshadowing, and be like, oh, that's really cool. But for now, I want to really just bring it home to a very practical application that I thought a lot about this week, and it deals with how we respond to interruptions in our life. And that is, I think if nothing else, this story really challenges us to welcome interruptions as potential divine appointments in our life. It's really important, and again, I'm speaking to myself, to see interruptions as potential divine appointments in our life. One of the questions that I put at the forefront of my mind, even just this week, and tried to see how I interacted through that lens is, do I, do I even see in the interruptions that are happening all around me, the small ones, the big ones, the 
economic interruptions, the relational interruptions, the psychological interruptions, the logistical interruptions, the weather, whatever whatever it is, do I even see them as a potential mechanism for God trying to get my attention? And to leave a path that is good, nothing wrong with it, it's solid, but I'm focused on the path. And I'm not adequately allowing God to say, yeah, just come off off road a little bit, just for a moment. You'll go back on that path in a second, but come here. Am I, am I settled in my mind and in my soul, and often I'm not, that God is at work in my life? I would say yes. But maybe especially during interruptions? That's hard for me to like, that's a hard pill for me to swallow. Because if I'm honest with you, I would rather commit my plans to the Lord, commit my day to the Lord, have an awesome plan, execute it, and then be able to look back and say, mm, awesome, hit all the marks, achieved all the things that I wanted to achieve that weren't self-centered. They were, uh, you, know, I, you know, I hope for God's glory, like they were put through that lens. But then when the interruptions come, man, I often treat them as if they're an impediment to God's work, which is this thing, rather than maybe they're leading me to something really, really important. Am I, do I welcome interruptions? Am I hospitable to interruptions? Or is there always a clenching of the teeth, a rolling of the eyes, a flare in my spirit of like, for real? Like, for real. I just sat down. I just got in flow. I just got here. I just left here. I just had this conversation. It's very, very hard for me, even just because of temperament. And it might be, for other people but I think for a lot of us it's very important to reflect on this story because it shows that just a mundane annoying frustrating interruption like we lost some of our livestock go find it is actually the mechanism where God set Samuel and Saul together in a divine appointment just by of hands, I won't ask you to, to, to share anything, just by a show of hands, how many people would say they've had an experience in their life that um, overlaps with this passage in the sense that they were doing their thing and then something happened. You probably thought it was annoying or bad or not great, less than ideal, but it moved you into contact with a person or an opportunity that you would not have had otherwise. And in hindsight, you can say, wow, that was definitely God orchestrating sort of a, a zig when I was intending on zagging. How many people have a, at least one of those experiences, right? And those are awesome experiences. And as I get older, the question that sometimes, well, increasingly, I think, uh, kind of bites at the edge of my consciousness is, how many of those opportunities did I miss because I just doubled down and ignored stuff and just got stuff done? Someone pops in at the church. They ask for help with something. I was on my way to do this. I helped them. But I don't even turn to say, hey, you know, we got that settled or whatever, but like, how's your week going? How are you doing? Do you want to stop and just pray for 30 seconds or whatever it is? I honestly don't do that very often. I'm trying to become more mindful 
But again, I can just see the interruption as something which needs to be dealt with. And man, this story is doing a work in me. I mean, this has been on my radar in some ways as I've, seen the resu- as I've experienced the results of just trying to commit my way to the Lord and then just bulldoze forward. It does demand I have sort of a posture of surrender throughout my day. God, I intended this for the afternoon, but this is just not going to work because I need to help a neighbor with this or I need to go to the hospital because of this or I need to stop and pray. When we understand that God is at work in the world, we move through our lives differently. We move through our mundane responsibilities differently because God is at work. But there's a, a second level to that, which is God may be especially at work in our lives through mundane disruptions. Right? There was a time where just a group of old fishermen were fishing. And some rando rabbi comes by and says, hey, leave your nets. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Come follow me. Uh, Thanks, religious man. No, it's okay. We're good. I like being a fisherman. That's fine. Right? There's all kinds of divine appointments. And if we get so locked in to our agenda, our life, even if it's filled with many, many good things, we can actually get pulled away from God's best. And this story teaches me that while I would never, I would never say the most important thing in my life is getting stuff done, executing the plan, keeping as many plates spinning as I can, accomplishing the goals, fulfilling all the expectations of, of people around me. I wouldn't say that out loud, but that's how I operate often. And what the story is teaching me is that there's something way more important than those things. Sometimes those things are necessary and in a vacuum, not, none of those things are bad. But if they distract me or blind me or lock me in in such a way that I can't be attentive to God's movements in my life, then something has gone wrong. Now, what I'm not saying is we go into our week unorganized, no plan, and and welcome and seek out interruptions. I don't think that's the point of the passage. I think the point of the passage is Saul did what was good and right. He listened to his dad. He went out and doing his responsibilities. That's what we should do too. We should set a course. We should make a plan. We should pursue the good. We should seek first God's kingdom and fulfill our responsibilities and be diligent in those things. But as we do those things, we should be open and we should be flexible enough so that when lost donkeys pop up, we pause long enough to say, God, I'm going to give this my attention. Maybe it's just the lost donkey and that's all that's going to happen and we're going to find it and reorganize things and get back on track. But maybe it's a divine appointment and I don't want to miss it. Because you never know where a search precipitated by an interruption by a lost donkey will take you. And you may even discover, like Saul did, that in your search for a lost donkey in your life, 
you are the one that actually gets found by God.